We turn to number 249 in the Psalter hymnal as we prepare to hear God's Word this morning. Number 249, Thy Word sheds light upon my path, a shining light it guides my feet, my right, Thy righteous judgments to observe, my solemn vow I now repeat. We're going to sing all four verses. Let's stand to sing number 249. It has indeed been a joy, as Reverend Niemeyer intimated, to be here together with you all this weekend. Uh, I've been blessed. Uh, he speaks of being blessed as he was fed, and I was fed by my, my fellows uh, who were at the conference, uh, as well as talking with you. And one is fed when you speak God's truth, uh, even if you're the speaker because it's not my truth, it's not my word, it's God's word, and it's rich, and it will not return void to Him. And He always feeds us as we look to Him, as we hunger and thirst after righteousness. So I do thank you for not only having me to the conference, the organizing committee and the consistory and council of this church, but the consistory uh, as well today, for inviting me to 
be privileged to come and to speak to you the word of the living God. What a blessing that it is for all of us to come into the house of the Lord and to worship our great God and King as we've been doing. Well, I'd like us to read this morning from Hebrews 12, the first three verses. Hebrews 12, and as you're turning there, it was mentioned uh, over the conference, uh, the book of Hebrews was cited more than once. And that book, we believe, many of us do, serves as something of a sermon or a kind of collection of, of sermons, perhaps. It has that form. So I may refer to the Hebrews preacher, and I mean the one who is giving this sermon of sorts that we find recorded for us in the book of Hebrews. So here now, God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what an unspeakable privilege it is to be gathered together this day in this place with your blood-bought people, washed in the blood of the Lamb, robed in His righteousness. And now, Lord, as we hear this word, may the self-same Spirit who gave it, give us to hear it and believe it as we continue in the race, as we press on in the Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Hebrews preacher, as I've noted, and his auditors were no strangers to trials and suffering. If you read through the book of Hebrews, particularly up to this point, you'll see that quite clearly. Chapter 11, many of you are quite familiar with that, I know, sometimes referred to as something like the, the Faith Hall of Fame. Chapter 11 spoke of faith triumphant, but also faith tried. And here, our preacher, in invoking this great cloud of witnesses, recalls all of those that he's just talked about in chapter 11, people like Abel and Enoch and Moses and Joshua and David and the rest. I just pick a few. And me, we may recall many others, and we've talked about them in this conference, in the history of the church, because you see, the great cloud of witnesses 
comprises all those faithful, all of those who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, those of old looking forward. And then we could think of those in the New Testament. Of course, you say, well, why did it just mention those in the Old Testament? Because that's where they were in redemptive history. But you could add to that Peter and Paul and John. We had readings from that. And then we talked about in the conference Augustine and Anselm and Luther and Calvin and Owen and Hodge and Machen and Kuiper and Bavink. And you could think of people in your own lives. Grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles. Those who have gone before, perhaps they taught you. They encouraged you to trust Christ. And they've gone forward. And they're part of that great cloud of witnesses. Now I think Linsky is, is right when he says that that great cloud of witnesses shouldn't so much be conceived as spectators in the stands watching us run the race, cheering us on. They're not so much witnesses of us, but they're witnesses to us. They're witnesses to us, all those who have trusted the Lord Jesus and have gone on to their reward are witnesses to us of lives lived by faith. And here the Hebrews preacher, I believe, having developed as he has through the book of Hebrews this wonderful, rich Christology, this doctrine of Christ that's so beautiful and rich, not quite like anywhere else in the Bible, because he's really reflected on the Old Testament and how what has come in Christ is in every sense better and is the fulfillment of all that has come before. And so here, here, he encourages us, as a preacher would, and he's coming to chapters 12 and 13, which has a lot of application. It has a great deal of application. It still has teaching and theology, but now he really is going to be applying all these things that he's been encouraging us to in this book. And so here the preacher particularly calls upon you, considering all the saints that have gone before, that great cloud of witnesses, whether in the Old or New Testament church history or your own lives, to consider them and thus in your own life to press on in the race that you're in. And particularly, the preacher calls us to three things, to lay aside hindrances and run the race. Secondly, to look to and follow after Jesus in faith. And finally, to learn endurance in all hardships. I believe you have this outline in your bulletin. Lay aside hindrances, look to Jesus, and learn endurance. This really is the Christian life. And this really is the way in which you will gain and increase in assurance by following after Jesus and continuing on. First of all, then we say, lay aside hindrances and run the race. This is the, the first call of our passage. The metaphor employed here is athletic. And you're familiar with this metaphor. Paul often employs 
athletic metaphors. Think 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Sometimes he speaks of boxing. Sometimes he speaks of other events in the Olympic Games. And here the Hebrew preacher speaks about a race. And of course he reflects that you can't run a race with excess baggage or weight. Now some people, when they're training, right? When they're training for running, will run with weights. Because when the actual race comes, it's easier. You know, it's like my wife used to say, it's like hitting your head against the wall. Boy, it feels good when you stop, right? So, but you don't run the race with this excess baggage or weight. You put aside, in fact, you try to, to slim down. If you were going to run a, a, a half marathon, a marathon, a 5K, a 10K, whatever, you, you, you seek to slim down, and when it's race time, you, you run with, you're clothed in a way that, that's light. Now, the Greeks, you may be aware, took this to an extreme in their athletics. We won't get into that. But we lay aside all things. I needed to do this and recognized this as a young Christian, about 20. And um, I was in college, and I, I realized I had to be honest that I couldn't come to the Bible or prayer without hearing music. I was so given over to and suffused with music that I couldn't come before God. And I was, I was convicted. And so for a time... I gave up what I, and you said, oh yeah, well that was bad music, you shouldn't. No, I can assure you it was exquisitely good music. That's not been my problem. Taste is not the problem here. <sighs> you see, it can be very good music. What we're talking about right now are things that are good, arguably good gifts. Things you need to lay aside. Not because they're wicked or evil. Now we're going to talk about sin which clings so closely. But right now we're talking about weights that you lay aside. I, my dad was telling me once how he was, in, in his earlier years, he was very active as a numismatist. That's just a coin collector. Don't, don't get worried. And the plate, the collection plate goes by. And he says, I'm thinking about this everywhere. I was thinking about it in church. And I realized, and the plate goes by. And, I don't have that quarter. You know, <laughs> At children, the quarters used to have silver in them, so it meant a little something. You can talk to some of the older people. That may sound a little odd to you. What's the point here? The point is that you need to lay aside whatever hobby, entertainment, employment, time taker, that may be good, but it keeps you from your service to Christ. It keeps you from that in your personal walk with Him, in your serving Him, in your family, in your ability to serve Him publicly. So... TV, sports, hunting, fishing, films, internet, music, whatever it is, don't let that keep you from the Word, from prayer. It's interesting on family visits. When I was a young pastor, I used to, and, and I'm not saying I don't still work with people in this way, but when I would visit people and, and say, well, you know, are you... Is everyone in the household? Are you, are you in the scripture? Do you seek the Lord in prayer? Do you, do you have family devotional time? No, well, we want to. We don't really have time for it. And now I tend to just go right forward and say, oh, I see. Now, let me just ask you, this past week, did, 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 did any of you eat here? And they start looking at you like, what? Did, did you sleep? 
But then you get into even other things. Well, I know you're into soccer. I know you're into baseball. Did you, well, yeah, we had games. We had to do that. You do what you want to do, friends. Be honest. You do what you want to do. So if you don't pick the word up yourself or in your family and read it, if you don't take that time in prayer, it's because you choose not to do that. You choose to do other things. You need to lay aside even good things if it's keeping you from your communion and fellowship with the Lord. And you wonder why you have problems with assurance. This will help. Lay aside not only the weights that hold you back, but especially the sin that clings so closely. Now we talked about that. Reverend Godfrey particularly talked about repentance and what's in view here. And really in this whole first point, ultimately, is repentance. Lay aside. Lay aside all that you need to. Hindrances, whether good things that hinder you, but particularly sin. Some things weigh us down, you could say, texting, online, shopping, Facebook, YouTube. But sin entangles our feet and brings us down. This is not so much, I think, besetting sin as is sometimes understood, as in some particular sin that bedevils you, though it wouldn't exclude this, of course. Rather, when the preacher says to set aside sin, he means more broadly, the flesh, the old man, the sin nature to which we're to die as we're to live to righteousness as new men and women in Christ. One writer said, sin is sticky. Sin is sticky. It, 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 it presents itself attractively. Thomas Brooks talked about how the enemy, how the devil will show us the bait and hide the hook and he'll present sin as the most attractive thing before we've committed it. And he'll present repentance. He'll even suggest to you, well, you can always repent after. You're a Christian. It's easy. It's easy. But so we take that bait. And then you hope and repentance, which seemed so easy before, doesn't seem so easy now. Don't worry. I'm not going to keep doing that. But you need to get the point. It's not so easy when you start indulging sin to just walk away. Avoid it, but then repent as early as possible. Repent as early as possible. Because once you sin, the devil has a way of saying, well, you've done that, you might as well do it. Just, let, just have a whole catalog of sins and you can, you know, re repent tomorrow. Or repent a few days from now. Don't fall for that. These witnesses to you of chapter 11 would testify to you of laying aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. You might say, oh, okay, wait a minute. Samson is in the list. David is in the list. They failed, didn't they? Yes. They languished. They fell behind in the race. Maybe you've been doing so lately. But being, hear this, being persons of faith, Samson at the last, David, repented and knew God's gracious forgiveness by the blood of the Lamb. Let me encourage you too as well. Have you been giving way to hindrances, both distractions and clear sins? It's never too late. 
to repent. If you can hear my voice, it's not too late. And the devil may be telling you, you're, you're, you're done. You've sinned too much. No. No. Repent. See your sin. Acknowledge your sin. Turn from your sin. The Lord is more ready to forgive and to receive you than you are to come to Him. Lay aside hindrances and run the race. Let me just say this bit more about this race. The race, of course, just so we're clear. The race is the life that we're called to live in Christ. That's what the preacher means here when he tells you to lay aside hindrances and run the race. It's a life of of joy, of triumphs, of trials, of suffering, even persecution. Certainly this is true in the book of Hebrews. And maybe you've been waiting for this. I know I would be if I were sitting out there as you. I would be waiting for the guy standing here to tell me about the character of this race in this respect. To say something like, it's not a hundred meter dash or a hundred yard dash. It's not even a 5K. This race that you're in, this race called the Christian life is a marathon. And the reason I say that is because that's the kind of thing I'm sort of like, oh, okay. It's really the long haul. I'm tired. A marathon, huh? Did you have to say that? Yes, I have to tell you the truth. And if that makes you faint in anticipation of such, when you hear that, and it makes you feel so weak and say, I'm not sure I can go on. I'm not sure I can go on. Then you're just in the right place. Because Paul says when we're weak, then we're strong. It's in knowing that you can't do it that you come to really rely more and more on Jesus. You come to repent. and You come to rely on Him. The hymn writer put it this way, the only fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. I don't know if I'm fit for a marathon. The only fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. I'll tell you the people who are in trouble, if you're like, it's a marathon and I can run it and I'll beat everybody here. Hmm, problem. Problem. How's your weakness to be dealt with? and your sense of need met, this brings us right to our second point. Look to Jesus and follow after Him in faith. Lay aside the hindrances. That's repentance, you can say. And here is the call and the second point to faith. This is the Christian life. Repentance and faith. And isn't it just beautiful? Look to Jesus. Just when you're fainting, just when you're ready to give up. This is the real heart of the matter. Look to Jesus. Faith, this whole book of Hebrews has set forth, is looking to Jesus. Resting and trusting in Christ alone. It's the central imperative of the book. You may recall, of course, that Habakkuk 2.4 has that, that statement... He says, the just shall live by faith. And that gets picked up by Luther and the Reformers. They make a big deal of that. But it's no wonder they do. Because that statement gets picked up by three 
central New Testament books, right? Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews all have explicit statements and quotes of Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. And one preacher mid-last century observed, and I think rightly and helpfully, that there's a sense in which the book of Romans really focuses on the just, and the book of Galatians shall live, and Hebrews by faith. This is the book of faith. That's what it's about. Faith consists, we say, typically, right, of three parts. It's, it's knowing who Jesus is, knowing the truth of God as it's presented in the Word and the promises of God, knowing that content intellectually, understanding that. And then it's not just that, though, it's believing it. I studied with people in secular places who... I studied with one man who knew the Westminster Standards very well but didn't believe a word of them. I mean, he didn't profess to believe it. He was a leading scholar in the world in his particular area. So it's not enough to just know it. You must believe it. You must assent to it. But there's a third element that makes saving faith, that gives it its real form and shape, and that's trust. Boys and girls, think about this. The building is on fire, and all the escapes are cut off, and you're pressed over to the window. You're on the 11th floor and you see that the ladder trucks only reach up to the 8th floor. So you're in trouble. But the firemen are down there and they're motioning you to jump. They have a net, not a girl, but a net that you can jump into. And so knowing and seeing and believing that you're in mortal danger, that your life is going to be gone, is 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 knowledge and assent. But unless and until you jump out that window, there's no exercise of trust. We're called to exercise trust in faith, to give ourselves to the Lord, to fall into His arms, as it were, to surrender. There's many ways that we try to speak about this. Paul said he looked away from his law-keeping and Philippians to be found in Christ. Moses in the previous chapter looked away from Egypt's present enticements to him and he endured in that look of faith, seeing him who is invisible. Faith is essentially, you see, looking away from all that you are and have and do and looking to none other than Christ. Faith is utterly extrospective. Have you been looking elsewhere? Have you been looking to the world and its allurements? Look to Jesus Christ alone. And get this, Calvin makes a great point here. He says, even though the saints are a witness to us, as we've talked about, that great cloud of witnesses, we always and ever and only look at them. We never look to them. You never look to your mom and dad, your grandma, your grandpa. You only look to Jesus. You look at the faith of others, but you don't look to them. There's only one you look to. And that's the Lord Jesus. Jesus is said to be here the founder and perfecter of better faith. Not, not our faith so much, but the founder and perfecter of faith. Certainly that He's the perfecter. We talked a lot about that this weekend. 
He's the one who lived and died for us in his active and his passive obedience. And thus, he is the supreme object of our faith. First of all, before he's an example, Jesus is the object of our faith. We're to trust him. We're to look to him who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, what only he did. But you might say, how is he the founder? That's an interesting statement. Well, Jude 5 says this. It speaks about Jesus saving a people out of the land of Egypt. And Bruce points out, yeah, this is how he is the the founder or the source of our faith. Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 10, right? He talks about Jesus being the rock that followed them and from which they drank. That rock was Christ. So Jesus is not only the object of our faith, He's the source of our faith even for those in the Old Testament. And so we both look to and follow after Him in this faith. We follow after Him in His humiliation. While He was below in His incarnation, He was in a state of humiliation. And He endured the cross, despising the shame, verse 2 says. And we're now in our humiliation until we go to resurrection, until the Lord comes. And we're to endure the cross. Yes, much shame. We're reviled, harassed, put upon. But even in the shame of his humiliation, he had joy. Note that he endured and was able to endure the cross and everything that led there with all of its shame and indignity. One writer said his life was a perpetual Gethsemane because of the joy set before him, verse 2. He endured as he did. He was a man of sorrows, but ultimately, he's not a man of sorrows, he's a man of joy. Ultimately, do you get it? This is great and assuring because all you're going through now in this state of humiliation, don't be surprised, as Peter says, the fiery trials that come upon you. Don't be surprised. You follow after him. This is our state of humiliation. We don't enter exaltation until resurrection, and he didn't either. But he could look to that joy before him. He could look to that and endure. The joy on the other side of the resurrection, the joy of salvation accomplished and then applied by the Holy Spirit. This triumph, the anticipation of which brought joy, is realized in His ascension, in His session, that is in His being seated at the right hand of God, both reigning from there as our King... And as our great high priest, he's offered a once-for-all sacrifice. That offering of sacrifice, that's over and done. But his priestly office continues in this way. He's seated there as king, ruling and reigning over all, but ever living as your great high priest to make intercession for you. So in this marathon, in all your difficulties, in all of your weaknesses, in all of your lack of assurance... Jesus is praying for you. You know, I may say, I'll pray for you, brother or sister. You may say the same to me, and and we mean it, and yet we forget to pray for each other. He never does. So that was talked about in the conference too. We have the Holy Spirit as an advocate within, and we have Jesus Christ. There's a double advocacy at the right hand of the Father. The Lord who calls you to lay aside endurances and run the race, to look to and follow after Jesus in faith, finally urges you to learn endurance. 
learn endurance in all hardships. Such has been urged all along in this book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is very concerned about not simply starting, but finishing. And you're to run the race with endurance. You're to endure the cross. You're called not only to faith in Him, the first call of the Christian, but to learn to consider Him as the example of endurance and to imitate Him in that. Look at His endurance. He, the Lord of glory, endured as none other ever did. Hughes said and remarked on the utter loneliness of Jesus on His earthly course. Often we feel very alone. I've just told you that even if I forget to pray for you or your friends do, He does. And sometimes you are very alone. But nobody has ever been alone in the way that Jesus was in terms of anybody else on the earth understanding Him. He endured from sinners remarkable hostility against Himself. He was no sinner in any sense and He deserved no opposition, but quite the opposite. He deserved only praise, honor, and glory. But He came out of the ivory palaces scented with cassia and aloes, into a world of woe, as the old song said, where not only was he not honored, but he was reviled, his beard was plucked out, he was spat upon. He emptied himself of heavenly glory. This is the hostility that he endured. And he did not, he did not strike out. He took it. He took it. He took it and did not revile in return, but went to the cruel tree for his very tormentors. And there he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who does that? He who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, who could justly have called twelve legions of angels to destroy the world and set him free. But instead, again, as the old song said, he died alone for you and me. He took the full measure of the Father's wrath that burned hot against us for our sin. Why? Because He loved us. So as you are encouraged to lay aside hindrances to repent and to look to Jesus to believe and then to keep doing that to endure. Once one of my seminary professors was asked by somebody, not that I remember, I mean there's a lot you don't remember, but this was especially from this professor, but this was memorable. I didn't tell you who it was. And somebody said, what's the secret of the Christian life, professor? And he said, perseverance. I think there was a lot to that, actually. In other words, head towards Jesus and keep heading towards Jesus. Keep laying aside the hindrances, keep looking to Him and endure, meaning keep heading in that direction. You say, well, that's not that profound. Okay, maybe, maybe not in one sense. But it's the answer. And it will give you great encouragement. Because He endured in this way. We need to learn from Him and to not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's what verse 3 says. In our trials and all the opposition that comes our way from the devil, the flesh, and the world, think of everything that has come to you in your life. Learning to endure hardships, let me just give you this. It means particularly learning to wait on the Lord. A lot of times you'll invite people maybe to church. 
and they'll come out for a few weeks. They're going through a lot of stuff. And you say to your neighbor, come to church and, and, and hear the Word of God. Please, I beg you, I know things are really tough in your life, but, but this may help. And they come out for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, and they may say, this isn't working. Let me say something to you. That's not the way the Christian faith works. You don't hear two or three sermons and wow, it's all, everything's all in place. It's a life lived. Endurance, friends. This isn't a quick fix. Sorry. I know we want that. Get IT, IT, get over here and fix this problem now. I understand that. That's our world. That's our culture. But you have to wait on the Lord. You have to come here and hear His Word and interact with His people and talk to the pastors and the elders and because you're being readjusted in your whole thinking. You haven't been accustomed, if you're outside of Christ, you haven't been accustomed to repenting and believing. And that's a, that's a lifestyle that one cultivates. John Milton had to learn to wait on the Lord in an extraordinary way. He was struck with blindness when he still had in him what he regarded as his best poetry and many would regard as the greatest, some of the greatest poetry in the English language. And Milton, in struggling with this, blindness, wrote this great sonnet. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my Maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God Exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask. But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts, who best bear his mild yoke. They serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed and post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. And the psalmist has a lot to say about waiting on the Lord. How do you do that? Please tell me how you do that. You wait on Him in the ordinances that He's ordained, in the means of grace. You wait on Him in the Word, particularly and especially its preaching, the sacraments as you come, as you improve your baptism. If you say, I have no idea what that is, listen to the conference talks. They are available. That wasn't explicitly mentioned. I don't get any money from them, so this is not a shameless appeal on my part. It's just saying you'll be blessed if you do. And come and commune at the table of the Lord and seek Him. It's by a faithful use of the means of grace in public and private as you seek God in prayer, as you read His Word, that we're able to go on to endure, to keep from burning out year in and year out. It's by these means of grace that the Spirit builds us up so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted in this marathon called the Christian life. But you have to endure in this. So it can't be, well, you know, I've, I've heard five sermons and nothing's happened. Really? That's the kind of path you want to go down? 
didn't your parents teach you anything worth having is not easy, it takes effort? You know, if the answer to how do you get to Carnegie Hall is practice, 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 well, surely, how do you live the Christian life? You say, but, but, but it's... I thought it was all a gift. It was all freely done. That's right. That's right. There's a sense in which it costs you nothing because it is a free gift. But there's another sense in which it costs you everything. Because you're to lay aside everything. You're to look to Jesus. You're to endure. You're to wait on Him in the means of grace. In faith, that which enables particularly waiting and endurance is not some cold impersonal property. The heart of faith is trust in Christ here and hereafter. It's by this personal, ever-renewed act that we know blessing, assurance, endurance. God's gracious keeping of us now and to eternity. His church, in fact, knows this providential care until He returns. When faith becomes sight, when hope is realized, and when love, the greatest of all, fills our horizon as never before, when we see our Savior face to face, until then, lay aside every hindrance and run the race, looking to Jesus in faith, learning endurance in all of life's challenges. Amen. Let's pray. Great and gracious Godfather of our Lord Jesus Christ, how we bow before you. How we worship and adore you. Father, thank you for the riches that are ours in the gospel. Thank you that Jesus Christ has done it all, paid it all. Help us then to repent to believe, to endure, and to endure by waiting on you in the ordinances that you've ordained and by profiting from them. Help us, Lord, as your people, to be assured, encouraged, challenged, and continue to press on. In Jesus' name, amen. It reminds me uh, what we're going to sing, Onward Christian Soldiers, that uh, Spurgeon was once with a group of students and they started singing, Hold the Fort. And they sang a verse or two, that's an old gospel hymn, Hold the Fort, but it wasn't to Spurgeon's liking because he wasn't one to just hold the fort. He wanted to go forward and he started singing, Onward Christian Soldiers, and let's sing it. Number 466.
Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, receive now this blessing. And the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.